Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Sylvia Albert is on the line. She is the director of voting and elections at Common Cause and an attorney with uh, decades of public interest law experience. CommonCause.org is the website, of course, the Twitter handle at Common Cause. And Common Cause has been working in this area for over 50 years and doing just extraordinary work. Sylvia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm looking at this story from uh, today's Guardian. Um, McLennan County, home to Waco, Texas, closed 44% of its polling places between 2012 and 2018, despite the fa- fact that its population grew by more than 15,000. Two-thirds of that growth came from black and Latinx uh, residents. Uh, in 2012, there was one polling place for every 4,000 residents. By 2018, it has down to one polling place for 7,700 residents. Um, in Brazoria County, south of Houston, closed almost 60% of its polling locations between 2012 and 2018. Uh, the 50 counties that gained the most black and Latinx residents between 2012 and 2018 closed 542 polling sites compared to just 34 closures in the 50 counties that have gained the most white people or the fewest black and, and, and Latin, Latino uh, residents. What the hell is going on here? Forgive my language. Sure. So, um, unfortunately, what you're seeing is the result of the Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Uh, It used to be that states with a history of voter suppression had to check in with the federal government before they made these massive changes that would... Um, disproportionately impact people of color, but the Supreme Court in 2013 kind of said, eh, we might, we kind of think racism might be fixed, and um, gutted the Voting Rights Act. So what you're seeing now is um, states all over the country who are implementing more suppressive voting rights laws and closing locations everywhere. And as you said, it's having a devastating effect in um, communities of black and brown people. Yeah. And, and, and people standing in line, you know, two, three, five, six, ten hours to vote. I mean, this is insane. Um, uh, what, what, what were you hearing at Common Cause? I know you guys had, you were uh, running a, a, a toll-free number, were you not, last night? Yes, we are partners. Um, uh, we are part of the Election Protection Coalition. So we have a phone line that runs as long as the polls are open, 866-OUR-VOTE. Uh, and I was there for 18 hours yesterday. Whoa. And, you know, sadly what I can tell you is it was it was a fairly routine election day. Machines were down. New and old machines were down. Polling locations were closed. Um, misinformation was being spread on the Internet or through robocalls about when and where to vote. Um, you know, five, six, seven-hour-long lines. Uh, and the sad thing is that really is just very typical. Yeah, and it shouldn't be. I mean, there are several places in the Constitution where the phrase right to vote is referenced. The 1993 Motor Voter Act 
there's an official name for it, but that's what everybody calls it, both in the uh, preamble and in the act itself, says voting is a right in the United States. Is it simply because the Supreme Court in 2000 said there is no right to vote for president of the United States in the Constitution? Is it that the Supreme Court has never, uh, you know, that the, the 93 Voting Rights, uh, you know, Motor Voter Act has never been tested before the Supreme Court? Why is it that it's easier for Florida and Texas to take away somebody's vote than it is for them to take away somebody's gun? Well, what you're seeing really is a result of the 50 state plus the district and territories system we have. Every state and down to county and down to city runs their own elections the way they want to. And what that means is that gives political actors an opportunity to manipulate the laws for partisan gain. So we often see, depending on whether it's a Democrat or Republican, gerrymandering the lines so that certain voters' votes do not, quote-unquote, count as much as others. The, The amount of money in politics, you know, the closing of polling locations, the unfair amount of money that's being distributed to different counties to purchase machines, you know, this is really about abusing the system for partisan gain. And unfortunately, that is able to happen more in some states than others. And it just might be that people aren't paying attention or it's just kind of the ingrained power structure within the state that makes it harder to make changes. In California, there were long lines. California is, you know, a state run by Democrats. So you would think that they would have their act together. I realize they had new voting systems in some places, particularly L.A. County. In Texas, I was watching the coverage. We were kind of channel surfing. At one point, Rachel Maddow went off on a rant about, you know, Texas is a Republican-controlled state, and why are they making it harder to vote? And then the next two or three people who came on were from democratically controlled counties, and they made it a point of saying, well, the local election stuff here is actually controlled by the county, which is democratically controlled. So if you have a criticism, you need to take it up with them, essentially. I don't know how true that is. I don't know, you know, if those counties don't, can't get resources from the state, for example. But what should we expect in November? So part of the reason, and a big part of the reason that we are here um, as an advocacy organization and as and with our partners, is that we are paying attention when everybody isn't. So our coalition election protection is 365 days a year. You guys see us on election day because you call us, but we are looking at all of these issues every single day and working with local elections officials to advocate for more resources, you know, more machines, better reforms that expand access to voting, like online voter registration or automatic voter registration. And what we did see the last couple of years very positively is that the coalition was part of a team that was able to secure $800 million for the states in the last two omnibus bills for election improvement and election security. And so that's the kind of thing that we really need to be paying attention to and to really be pushing. It really shouldn't be one off every few years or often every 10 years since the last HAVA funds. There needs to be sustained economic support for the states to implement elections every year. We have to, as citizens, have to put our money where our mouth mouth is and say elections are important, and this is where we want our money to be spent. So, I mean, all the problems we saw, we are going to be working with elections officials and our advocate partners to try to find fixes for them and improve them before November, and the cycle will continue, really. Yeah. H.R. 1, the first piece of legislation that Nancy Pelosi got out of the House of Representatives when she became Speaker, addresses many of these issues and does a really great job of it, as, as far as I can tell. But passed the House of Representatives, no problem, but Mitch McConnell literally will not even allow committees in the Senate to take a look at this piece of legislation, much less any kind of debate on the floor. Is it going to come down to if we want to have election protection, if we want to have if we want to stop naked suppression of the vote, stealing of our votes, particularly in black and brown communities by Republican secretaries of state, that the only way to do that is for Democrats to show up in such overwhelming numbers that we can take back the Senate? Well, we are supporters of H.R. 1, obviously, but we also want to note that there are It's not just at the federal level that you can make these changes. Mm -hmm. So 
as we know, H.R. 1 does not have a chance of getting past Mitch McConnell to be onto the floor to get votes. Right. And but I realize you're not a partisan organization. Yeah. I wasn't trying to right. get you yeah. to endorse a partisan action. I'm sorry, Sylvia. But anyhow, no. continue your thought. <laughs> That's okay. I was just going to just point out that, you know, at the state level, we are getting positive changes. Last year in Michigan, voters overwhelmingly approved expansion of their voting rights. Pennsylvania this last year passed no excuse absentee voting, which is a wonderful advantage so that you don't have to, you know, have a doctor's note to be able to absentee vote. To vote by mail, yeah. Right, to vote by mail. We have various redistricting campaigns happening in, a, in different states so that and by the way, these are Democrat and Republican states where the party in power is not supportive of redistricting because it would lose seats for them. Yeah. So regardless of what party is in power, you can work at your state level to advocate for these positive changes. And what we hope is that that's, you know, kind of creates a domino effect and forces the federal government to implement on a national scale. Great. Sylvia Albert, Director of Voting and Elections at Common Cause, commoncause.org, and also that's the Twitter handle is Common Cause. Sylvia, thanks so much for dropping by with us. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you today. Um, and uh, a topic that's not going to go away. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Tom Hartman here with you. And we are starting a new thing here on the program. It's our caller of the day. So be nice to Joyce, our call screener, because it's her choice, her decision. And uh, she has decided that our next caller, Michelle, will be our caller of the day. Michelle from Lakeside, California, is going to be sent an autographed copy of The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Michelle, thanks for calling. You're on the air. And congratulations. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for that. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'm calling because in California, we have some very specific rules for voting mm -hmm. in the primary. And one of those rules is you have to be an American independent, a Democrat, it's like, or a Republican in order to cast a vote for president. Now, a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> hmm. And so what you're, you're talking about in the primary, know, in the primary. Yeah, I'm talking about yeah. in the primary, yeah. right. You know, because you can vote as a non-party voter. You know, Which is about a third of California three. voters. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And it's like, and no one's talking about this. Yep. Yeah. Because California know, has essentially closed primaries. And there you go. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Michelle, you are our caller of the day. Thank you for the information. And, uh, and, and I hope you, you enjoy the book. I'm looking forward to sending it to you. Thank you so much. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's on your mind? What? can you tell me about the, the the meaning and what it means to register as a Democrat? Is it a state thing? Is it a national thing? Blah, 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 blah. Anything you got to like? It's, it's a state thing. Every state administers their own elections, and, and uh, about half the states have what are called open primaries, which means you can vote in either the Democratic or Republican or, or any other party's primaries. And about half the states have what are called closed primaries, where if you want to vote in the Democratic primary, you have to be registered as a Democrat. And then you've got some states where it's kind of a little bit of both. In California, you can literally go in on the day of the election and say, you know, I was registered as no party preference, but I really want a Democratic ballot. You know, please give me one. But there's a little song and dance you have to go through. We talked with uh, Greg Palast about this on this issue. So that's the principal thing. The other thing I would add to it, though, is that if you register as a Democrat and if you show up at your local Democratic Party meetings and can you know, raise your hand and say, yes, I'm registered as a Democrat, I'm a member of this club, then you can work your way up into a leadership position in the Democratic Party without an, a mind-boggling amount of effort. And in some cases, these jobs even have paychecks associated with them. You know, being precinct, precinct committee person in some states, actually, they pay you for it. In most states, it's voluntary. And I don't know what the situation is in Washington, but... I gave the uh, keynote address for the DuPage County Democrats in Chicago last Saturday night, 
and at least three people came up to me and said, I am now a precinct committee person or precinct committee chairperson because you told me about it on your show, and boy, am I having fun. We write the party platforms. We decide who the primary candidates are going to be. We're having a big impact and a big influence, and you know, we're solid progressives, and now we're, you know, we're starting to see progressives taking over the Democratic Party here in DuPage County, which is you know, uh, one of the Chicago area. I think it's a Chicago suburb. That's the kind of two-part answer. Did I answer your question, Maverick? Yeah, you did very well. And thank you for being a patriot. And thank you for teaching me all the things you've taught me over the last three, three and a half years I've been listening. Well, great. Thank you. And thanks for your kind words. And, and I'm glad you could make it to our thing in Seattle. Uh, it would have been nice to shake your hand or fist bump with you. <laughs> Maverick, Wash thanks. your hand. There you go. Maverick, thanks a lot. Good talking to you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Hartman. Uh, this is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. 
The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. Embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B, and it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern internet, for example, the main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, 
the vast majority, more than two to one, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up. And other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. Paula in Miami. Hey, Paula, what's up? I'm calling because I'm concerned about 2020, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to 2018. And we've lost two governorships, one in Florida and one in Georgia, because of the purging. That's correct. We lost in Florida by four-tenths of a percent. And that could be just some purging. It was just some purging, Paula. The, the only reason that you have Republican governors in any of these states that typically wobble back and forth by one or two points is because of voter purging. I, you know, I document that very, very clearly in my new book on, on the war on voting. It's, that's absolutely the case. And Stacey well, Abrams, in fact, there's a whole chapter in my book titled Stacey Abrams was robbed. Um, and Florida, too. The yep. Florida was robbed, too, with yep. Rick Scott shouldn't have never became senator. Yep. And the other thing, the other question I had was, if more Democrats had showed up in 2018, why did we lose Senate seats when we won House seats? People vote down ticket. It, we, we should have picked up Senate seats. Well, and I'm afraid now... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm afraid for 2020 because they may decide to purge like a week before the election without giving people time to re-register. Yeah, they, they, need, to fight, they need to fight the purge continuously. But, Paula, you asked why, why did the Senate go the way it did in 2018. There's actually, you know, each senator serves for six years. And so what they do is they stagger. One-third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years. And just, you know, coincidence of time and all this stuff going back 240-plus years is that last in the last election cycle, the majority of the people in the Senate who were up for re-election were Democrats. This time around, I believe it's 23 Republicans are up for re-election. It might even be a larger number than that. But the, this year, this year, the majority of the of the senators who are up for re-election are Republicans. And so, so most of us show up to vote Democrat-wise. If more Democrats by by millions show up more, we should be picking up seats. You're absolutely Senate right. That's that's well my point. That is my point. And thank you very much. Very well said, Paula. Thanks for the call. Sharon in San Francisco. Hey, Sharon. I'm worried about William Barr interfering in all of those cases in New York and squashing. Oh, he those, shut down six attorneys. investigations into Trump when he became attorney general. In New York, all of those? No, no. They were all. These were all federal. There were six federal investigations into Donald Trump, and Bill Barr shut them down when he became AG. Sharon, my apologies. The uh, we hit the hard break here. I missed the clock again. Normally, I'm much better than that. I, my apologies. Call back anytime, and we'll put you on the air. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. We have, uh, I was just looking at buzzflash.com. Great news website run by my old buddy, uh, Mark Carlin, out of Chicago, who's spent much of his life as a protect you from guns activist but buzzflash.com great website and their story banana republic creeping fascism don corleone trump hijacks department of justice to help out his criminal cronies and punish truth tellers but the second story is about how some demo some senate democrats are now talking about impeaching bill barr if he won't leave. I mean, this is this guy has been covering up for Republican presidents since 1992. He covered up the Iran-Contra investigation. He covered up the Iraq weapons of mass destruction investigation. Those were back during the, the Reagan and Bush administrations. And now he has, you know, he shut down six investigations into Donald Trump when he became attorney general. He had, he, I believe he shut down the Mueller investigation prematurely. We don't know if that's the case for sure. Yes or no. I mean, there's, there's still a huge debate about it, but Bill Barr, this is, you know, very, very problematic. I mean, th this is a serious issue here. And so there are these appeals. The other appeal, though, that's the, that is out there is to John Roberts, to the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Please do something, John Roberts. 
You know, about Donald Trump going after Amy Berman Jackson, the judge in New York City, who Trump refers to as a Clinton judge. I believe Bill Clinton appointed her to the bench. And therefore, she can't be fair, of course. She's the one who was in charge of the Manafort investigation, the Flynn investigation, and now the Roger Stone investigation, or trials. And so people are saying, well, John Roberts, save us from, you know, the evil Donald Trump and save Amy Berman Jackson, Judge, Judge Jackson. Well, here's the thing you need to know about John Roberts. John Roberts worked in the Reagan administration. There's a whole chapter about John Roberts in the Reagan administration in my book about the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. John Roberts went down to Florida in 2000 because he had clerked for the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, William Rehnquist. So he knew Rehnquist and he knew how to make an argument that Rehnquist would pay attention to. He went down to Florida and helped George W. Bush's legal team when they were suing Al Gore and the state of Florida to stop the recount that the state of Florida's Supreme Court had ordered because the Florida Constitution requires, or perhaps it was Florida law, but requires that if a Constitution, that if a, an election is within a half a point, that a, a recount is mandatory. And the state Supreme Court upheld that. And the U.S. Supreme Court blocked that. Clear violation of the Tenth Amendment. But John Roberts helped the legal team to make that happen in 2000. And as a thank you very much to John Roberts for that, George W. Bush made him Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. From being just a, you know, a lawyer who had, work, who had worked for Reagan, moving from a lawyer into, hey, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, I am not holding my breath for John Roberts to save us. John Roberts was the guy who wrote the opinion that we no longer need Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act which prevents southern states from closing polling places in black neighborhoods. We no longer need that because there's no more racism in America because it's 2013 and Barack Obama became president. And I'm not exaggerating or making that up. You can read the decision. So anyway, there, there's, there's a lot going on. And, uh, but, you know, we have to save ourselves. It's, it's not going to be John Roberts, who's going to save us. Ricardo in Sacramento, California. Hey, Ricardo, what's up? Hi there, Tom. Um, I listen to you as much as I can, and uh, I, I'm realizing that the theory on how we're going towards fascism with all this Trump stuff is uh, really not in the news enough. I, I agree with your theory, and, you know, my uncle fought in World War II uh, to fight against fascism and and uh it's making a comeback here and i think if it was in the news if that word was in the news more often i think people would maybe a bell would go off you know yeah yeah at least among older people saying it yeah yeah the, the problem with the with the word fascist is that you know since reagan stripped civics out of our public schools most americans don't know that fascism is a completely different thing than nazism and so when you say fascism they hear yeah. nazism but that said i'm not holding my breath for anything anyhow thanks a lot for the call ricardo well said barbara in honolulu hey barbara what's up Oh, hi. Uh, um, yeah, I was wondering, are you aware of the, the tests that were run on the default voting machines by Princeton University and other sources? Oh, sure. These voting machines are completely insecure. They're regularly hacked by 14-year-olds at DEF CON every year. Exactly. Well, what I heard is that a lot of them were used in New Hampshire, and that might explain why Bernie all of a sudden dropped so many points. And I'm just wondering well, if I anybody's looking into investigating this. I don't know. I, I doubt it's the voting machines. I, I think it's more likely that, in, you know, four years ago he had only one opponent, and this time he had, you know, about 15. Um, but he had yeah, five or yeah, six that were serious opponents, number one. And number two, um, the New Hampshire just put into place their new anti-student voter ID law that says that if you're a student in New Hampshire and you want to vote, and before before now, if you lived in New Hampshire more than six months out of the year, you could call it your place of residence and you could vote. You didn't have to get a New Hampshire driver's license. You could simply, you know, prove that you were at college there. Uh, they changed that law to say if you're going to vote, you have to sign a paper saying that within 60 days you will register your car in New Hampshire. You will become a New Hampshire citizen, essentially. And uh, now I have not seen a verification of this. I heard on MSNBC from a commentator that that cut the student voting in half in New Hampshire. I've heard other people say that it didn't, so I don't know. But I think that if there is something that accounts for that, 
if first of all, if it's a thing, um, you know, he was going up against quite a field. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that he didn't get half the vote like he did last time. Or actually, last time he got a whole lot more than half the vote. So I'm not, you know, I don't think that we need to drop ourselves into uh, voting machine, uh, you know, fears. Although the electronic voting machines are an abomination. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom, I got a quick uh, comment and then a question for you. Thank you, Mark. Get your mouth closer to the microphone, please. The comment is, as important as voting is, it's more important who counts them. Yeah, that was Joe Stalin's famous quote. Well, it's true. And then uh, the question is, is if they do impeach Barr, how does that work? I mean, who who steps in and runs runs it like the attorney general would? If he's the one being investigated. Well, it would be the it would be the assistant attorney general and until the president appoints a new attorney general, number one. And and number two, the way that the impeachment works of a cabinet officer is the exact same way it works for the president. You hold hearings in the House of Representatives. The House, you know, the, a, uh, presumably the Judiciary Committee refers articles of impeachment to the full House. They vote on them. If he's impeached in the House, then it goes to the Senate for a trial. We just saw this whole movie. It would have to replay itself. And I, you know, as much as I think Bill Barr has committed impeachable offenses that go all the way back to 1992. I don't see it happening. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls in just a minute. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
our book club today, we're reading from Thomas Frank's book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. This is chapter one, titled Servile Disobedience. Social scientists have tried for more than a century to understand how class works. Psychological experiments on the subject, however, are a relatively novel thing. So I was surprised to discover a few years ago that psychologists had published a series of papers on the behavioral aspects of social status and that their findings were almost uniformly unflattering towards society's winners. In one 2009 study in psychological science found that in conversations with strangers, high-status people tend to do more doodling and fidgeting and also to use fewer engagement cues, looking at the other person, laughing, nodding their heads. A 2010 paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that lower-class individuals, in quote, uh, turned out to be better performers on measures of such pro-social virtues as generosity, charity, and helpfulness. A third study found that those of higher status were noticeably worse at assessing the emotions of others or figuring out what facial expressions mean. All of which is to say the rich are different from you and me. They are more rude and less generous. They don't understand, they don't get what others are thinking, and apparently they don't really care. Perhaps this is obvious to you. After all, people don't design toxic debt obligations by calling on what they learned in Sunday school. Still, the research aroused media interest. The Christian Science Monitor's 2010 account of one study ended with this question, quotation from Michael Krauss, then the University of California, San Francisco, who was one of the researchers, quote, Being empathic is one of the first steps to helping other people. One of the first things we're really interested in is what can make wealthy people, affluent people, the people with the capacity to give, what can make them empathic? I think I see the urgency of Dr. Krauss's question. After all, we have spent the past several decades doing everything we could to transfer the wealth of the nation into the bank accounts of the affluent to send them victorious, happy, and glorious long to reign over us. Oh, we've cut their taxes, gladly transferring much of the cost of keeping their property safe onto our own shoulders. We've furnished them with special megaphones so that their voices can be heard over the hubbub of the crowd. We've conferred upon them separate and better schools, their very own transportation system, and a full complement of private security guards. We've built an entire culture of courtiers and syncopants to make their every working hour an otherworldly delight. We let them construct a system of bonuses and executive compensation on the theory that it would be good for everyone if the people at the top got to take home much, much more than the rest of us. And when it turned out that the theory was wrong, that in the most famous cases, executives chased bonuses not to the shareholders' benefit, but at their expense, why, we promptly bailed them out. We allowed them to step into the Fed's discount window and fill their pockets. We generously transferred their reckless investments to our balance sheet, and we chastised them a little more than a polite, with little more than a polite request that they please not do it again. We've done everything we can to lift them up and exalt them as the new Leviathan. The least they can do in return, one feels, is to show a little empathy. Besides, look what we've done with the old Leviathan, the government. For decades, we've attacked it, redirected it, outsourced it, and filled it with incompetence and cronies. Yes, it still works well enough when we need to blow up some small country, but those branches of it designed to help our Americans of lower socioeconomic status, in quotes, as the scientists would put it, are now bare. We need the rich to be nice, stop doodling, and, and to pay attention and get generous. Now that the government has divested from the empathy business, we need the rich to discover brotherly love and fast. Come to think of it, wasn't that supposed to be the deal in the first place? The arrangement Andrew Carnegie brokered over a century ago when he made his big career move from Steel King to public library baron? The laissez-faire social contract would grant private business a free hand, but in exchange, those who piled up massive wealth were supposed to extend a magnanimous hand to the rest of us. As Carnegie wrote in his famous 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, we don't need socialism to solve our problems. Philanthropy is the true antidote for the temporary inequality distribution of wealth and reconciliation of the rich and poor, quoting Carnegie. Going further, Carnegie argued that the duty of the man of wealth was, quote, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he's called upon to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community the man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poorer brethren, end quote. That same way of thinking led Carnegie to support the estate tax of all forms of taxation. This this seems the wisest, he wrote. 
It, is, it was wise because it would, quote, induce the rich man to attend to the administration of wealth during his life. And if he didn't, then the tax would, re- would return most of his hoardings to the community from which it came, using Carnegie's words. Vestiges of the Carnegie attitude survive to this day. 2009 study of high net worth individuals by Barclays Wealth confirmed that American philanthropists tend to understand their giving in a context in which the state is either absent or irrelevant. And, of course, there are plenty of nice plutocrats who don't fidget or doodle when talking to strangers and who have no problem endowing a ward or a wing in return for a commemorative plaque. The business headlines even occasionally tell of billionaires coming together under the leadership of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to donate their fortunes to worthy causes. But the billionaires with the strongest sense of class solidarity have a very different plan for their disposable income. Activating their lobbyists in Washington, building grassroots movements to march on their behalf, and using their media properties to run experiments on human credulity. Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, just to catch up on some of the news here, a federal judge has ordered cover-up General Barr to give him an unredacted copy of the Mueller report. He thinks the bar is still hiding stuff about Trump's crimes. And this is not some grandstanding showboating judge. In fact, I think uh, Steve Vladek, who is a professor of law at the University of Texas Law School, said it best. He said, this is a remarkable opinion, a stunning rebuke of the attorney general of the United States from a federal district judge who is neither a firebrand nor one who's prone to hyperbole. It's Judge Reggie Walton. And, uh, you know, he, he basically said that... Um, uh, William Barr exhibited such an egregious lack of candor that his redactions in the Mueller report need to be reviewed for accuracy. Fascinating. And so, you know, Barr has until the end of the month to give that to this judge. Jared Kushner made $20 million in profit in, based on a tax break that he asked Trump to ask the Republicans to put into the tax bill, if I'm reading these news stories right. Mark Carlin has got a great piece about this over at BuzzFlash.com. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has a lot of explaining to do after a $5 million investment made him at least a $20 million profit. According to the report, uh, his holding was worth between $25 and $50 million. It cost him $5 million. And, And apparently the increase in value of Kushner and his wife, Ivanka Trump, they're, they're 20 to $45 million profit was the result of Trump's tax bill, which they apparently lobbied him on. Uh, meanwhile, Donald Trump Jr. is touring India. Uh, a great piece about this by uh, Zishan Alim over at Vox.com. The headline is, Donald Trump Jr.'s tour through India is staggeringly corrupt. Uh, President Trump's eldest son will be spending his time in India promoting Trump-branded luxury apartments throughout the country. Trump doesn't actually own anything in India, but he's cutting deals with hotels and apartment complexes all over the country, some very, very large ones, to put the Trump name on there, and then everybody who rents or leases or you know whatever profit they make, a piece of that goes to Donald Trump, to the Trump family. And uh, here's where it gets really bizarre. Indian newspapers have been running advertisements that promise home buyers willing to pay a roughly $38,000 booking fee for get an opportunity to quote join Mr. Donald Trump Jr. for a conversation and dinner. Government ethics experts in the U.S. are appalled, writes Alim. Uh, this seems designed to, divide, to invite corrupt behavior. Jr. is selling access to himself and by proxy to the President of the United States. And wait a minute, these, these are the guys who are all upset about Joe Biden's son being on Barismus board and making 50 grand a, a, a month. This and Jr. is over there uh, charging $38,000 a person to have dinner with him in India. And uh, Junior selling access to him and by proxy to the president of the United States in exchange for buying his products. If a member of the Indian elite wants a chance to advocate for a policy they'd like to see enacted, buying a Trump property is a simple way to do it. And now Junior is giving a speech on Indo-Pacific relations, but he has he's not supposed to be part of the Trump White House. Like, you know, Jared Ivanka, they don't take a paycheck, so, you know, maybe they don't have to do quite the disclosure that they may otherwise have to do. But, uh, but Trump Jr. is supposed to be running the company. Why is he giving a speech on Indo-Pacific relations? He's not a formal member of the White House. 
but he's causing people to think that he is. So they'll pay $38,000 to talk to him so that he can talk to daddy. Currently, a Trump organization has overseen five projects in India, making India the largest international market for the Trump company. And meanwhile, Texas has closed 750 polling places since 2012. Get ready. Uh, this is uh, voter suppression on steroids. It is, it is going to be rolling along. Connie in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Connie, what's up? Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Hi. I just wanted to give you a phone number. It's a comment line I found to call for William Barr. Really? And it's every, Yeah, and if everybody would call there and just... I have my pen the out. What's the number, Connie? 202 353 Okay. Have you called this number? Oh, yeah. And when it gets answered, what is it? Is it a recording? Yeah, well, it asks you some different options, you know, if you want to hear about you know, other topics or whatever. And then mm. the, the last one is to leave a comment. Oh, okay. 202-353-1555. Great. Right. Connie, thank you very much. I, I hope it does some good. I do too. Thank you very much. Don in Evergreen, Colorado. Hey, Don, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm a member of the uh, SSE Society for Scientific Exploration. It's a group of kind of outside-the-box scientists who mm -hmm. sometimes have trouble getting funding because they're outside the box. Mm-hmm. One of the guys at this year's uh, convention had a proposal for a fleet of ships, like just eight or ten, solar-powered. They would spray atomized saltwater, seawater, into the atmosphere using, like, inkjet technology. Mm -hmm. And that salt would be increase the reflectivity of the atmosphere, reflects it as shortwave radiation instead of longwave, so it doesn't heat the atmosphere near as much. And it would at least buy us time to get off of fossil fuels. It seems to me, Don, and I'm, I'm no expert in this field. I mean, you know, if you want to discuss electronics, I could probably hold my own or maybe even physics. But it seems to me that you have to get above the troposphere. Don't you have to get into the stratosphere to have reflectivity, to have any serious consequence? That's why when they talk about spraying zinc dioxide, for example, or zinc oxide, whatever the, you know, the white form of zinc or titanium dioxide is what it is. Uh, when they talk about spraying that into the upper atmosphere, when they talk about, you know, giant umbrellas, it's always, you know, low stratosphere rather than anywhere in the troposphere. If you've got something coming off a ship, it's not going to get more than, you know, a few hundred feet into the air. True, but they keep replenishing it where the stuff they spray in the high atmosphere it's got to last for a while yeah. it's got to take you know, and then and then what is it what does it do down. what does it do to the sea life underneath that depends on sunlight you're just recycling the salt water the seawater right back around you're just taking hmm. seawater atomizing it uh, creating these microfine salt particles like you have uh, along the coast right but if that salt you know, is reflective in the air when it's not reflective when it's in suspension or solution then you're reducing the amount of sun. I mean, that's the whole point, right? You're getting, reducing the amount of sun radi solar radiation right. that's reaching the surface of you're the ocean. You're reflecting it back up as short wave. Right. What's that going to do to phytoplankton and, wave, so. and stuff like that? I don't know. It's an interesting thought. Don, thank you for the call. Let me, let me ponder that one. Jeffrey in New York City. Hey, Jeffrey, what's on your mind today? Yes, good afternoon, Mr. Tom Hartman. Hello, Jeffrey. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change the whole thing and ask you and all the listeners, do you believe that the presidency or the office of the presidency corrupts decent people? In other words, President Bush, uh, he was a decent, I don't say good, any, neither one of them were good, but a decent man in, as a governor of Texas. And Obama was a decent senator of uh, Illinois. But when he got into the presidency, you know what Bush did? And we all know what... Um, uh, when Bush was a governor, he was gleeful about executing people. He, was, he, he executed more prisoners than any other governor in the history of the United States. And he, was, he reveled in it. He made jokes about it. Um, he made jokes about, remember when he executed Carla Faye Tucker and he, he made a joke in public about her? He wrung his hands together and he was like, please save me, Governor Bush, please save me. And then he was, ha, 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 because she was begging him for her life. I think that he was an evil, corrupt man when he was governor and he was an evil, corrupt president, frankly. Uh, there is, you know, the old saying, Jeffrey, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what we've been seeing since the Nixon presidency is a steady increase in 
powers being seized by the executive branch and also by the Supreme Court, frankly, and powers being lost or deferred to the, uh, to the executive and, and judicial branches uh, from, the, from the legislative branch, from the Article I branch. And that concerns me. I, I think that that's an issue that, frankly, we should be having a conversation about. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Jeffrey, for the call. Christopher in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Christopher, what's up? Hey, Tom, thank you. Thank you for all you do. Sure. Hey, Tom, I heard a report, and you probably heard of it as well. I think that something happened to the voting machines in Florida, and the FBI got, FBI got involved. And some I don't recall what happened, but the main reason why I was calling today is because I thought you might know. When Russians were hacking into voting systems, do you know for sure, and I couldn't find this when I Googled it, do you know for sure that if they changed the votes? No, that, we don't that know that. Me. We oh. do know that, and it wasn't just Russians, by the way. There were at least two other governments that, that infiltrated our voting systems. We do know that they got inside. We don't know whether they changed votes. Because, frankly, these systems are so insecure. I mean, you know, some of them are based on Windows 98. They're uh-huh. so insecure, and they keep no paper trail, that it's impossible to tell what happened. So we just don't right. know. And that's another, you know, good and strong reason, you know, why we've got to get rid of them. So uh, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Jania, am I saying that right, in Charlotte, North Carolina? Hi, yeah, yes. Well, Tom, I just want your take on this, and I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with North Carolina. There was a race between McCready and Dan Bishop mm-hmm. that the Republicans <laughs> spoiled, basically, and Don, Dan Bishop got it when, obviously, McCready won. And what happened was, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they were paying people for their absentee ballots. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, there was a big yeah, scandal. Yeah, that, I remember. Exactly. And instead of giving it to McCready, who honestly had so many votes anyway, the legal right way, they did a, a another vote. And some people I, I know directly could not take off to go vote. You know right. what I mean? And so it was just, it just wasn't fair. And so all I'm saying is, is North Carolina is, they're very busy. They are so busy messing with our votes. And one of my other questions is, right now, What's going on is the Faith Power Pack, and I wanted to make sure I said this to all our listeners, especially in North Carolina, Faith Power Pack. They are endorsing some Democratic people, and it's because they're trying to fracture the vote and take it away from the stronger candidates Hmm. as far as our Senate race is concerned. So I just want people to be aware that when you're watching the endorsements, check out who, who it's from. Mm-hmm. And and we just have to not be lazy and do our research on it, okay? Like, one of the senators that's in the racing, her name is Erica Smith, and the endorsement goes on to say, she's one of us, blah, 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 all this stuff. And it's endorsed on the Republican side, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so yeah. it's, just, it's just misinformation, and they are busy. And so uh, this is what I want your take on, if you don't mind. I just want to know, what can you give a couple of suggestions on if one of the races gets stolen again from us, especially in North Carolina here, what's some ideas or best way to mobilize effectively? Join the Democratic um, even, Party, join your local, uh, you know, good government organizations, become part of Indivisible or MoveOn.org or Black Lives Matter or what, you know, I mean, find find an okay. organization that's doing good work. It's a shame Acorn is gone. They, they were the premier voting organization in the country before right. Fox News took them down. But in North Carolina, the ex, this is from my book, uh, in North Carolina, the exit poll showed Clinton winning 48 to 46 percent. But when the votes were counted, yeah. Trump came out 49 to 46 percent. That's a 6 percent right. shift, 5.9 yes. percent shift. That's a sign of voter fraud. We stopped or, you know, the world stopped an election in Ukraine back in 2004 based on that kind of vote shift. You know, there's there is election fraud going on in North Carolina, Jania. I, I guarantee you. So but but find a local group to get active with that, that shares your values and your concerns and and do it. Jania, thanks so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be back here on the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the rest of us. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is out. And I wanted to tell you the most explosive stuff in the book. In fact, basically one large story from it. There's a, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, in the book, we go all the way back to the Constitutional Convention. We explain the Three-Fifths Compromise. We explain the, the Electoral College and how it came about and all that kind of wonky stuff. But I think the red-hot stuff is this. Let me just share with you four sentences from the book. This is from page 92. If you got your copy today, today is the day that if you bought it through the mail, it's getting delivered. And, you know, if you're going to a store, you can go pick it up. This is from page 92, top of the page. In the 2016 election, the exit polls showed Hillary Clinton carrying Florida. 47 to 46%. There's some fractions in there, but I'm not going to recite them because it gets confusion. confusing. 47 to 46%, although the, quote, actual, end quote, voted, counted vote, had Trump winning by 49 to 47%. Trump gained two and a half percentage points somehow, magically. In North Carolina, exit polls showed Clinton winning 48 to 46%. But the votes that were counted turned out with Trump's 49 to Clinton's 46%, a redshift of 5.9 percentage points for the, G the GOP. Pennsylvania's exit polls showed that Clinton won 50.5% to Trump's 46.1%. But when eligible votes were counted, in quotes, Trump carried the state 48.8% to Clinton's 47.6%, a redshift of 5.6 percentage points. In Wisconsin, it was Clinton beating Trump in the exit polls 48 to 44 percent. Yeah, Clinton actually won Wisconsin. But the so-called real count, Scott Walker's real count, put Trump over the top at 48 to 47 percent, with a redshift of 5.1 percentage points. Now, why do we call it redshift? Because whenever we see a disparity between the exit polls and what the state reports as the actual count, that disparity, that shift, almost always favors Republicans. And this whole redshift phenomena almost exclusively happens in red states. Now, back in the day, in the early 2000s when we saw this, in the, in the 2000 election, for example, the exit polls showed that Al Gore won Florida massively, tens of thousands of votes. It wasn't until a year or so later that we discovered that Jeb Bush had taken a felon list from Texas, from George Bush, the governor of Texas, and compared it with his voters list in Florida, where, where Jeb Bush was governor, and thrown all those people off the Florida voting rolls who had names similar to the Texas felons. And because Hispanics derive all their names from one language, Spanish, and the majority of African Americans derive all their last names from one language, English, you have a relatively small name pool for Hispanics and, and African Americans in the United States, whereas Caucasians come from you know, langu you know, language groups including Slavic and Russian and Scandinavian and Greek and Polish and, you know, I mean, it's all over the map. So there's huge diversity among white names. So they didn't get bounced off the, off the voting rolls in Florida, but black people and Hispanic people sure did. Now, in some states, they actually count provisional ballots, but in most red states, they don't, unless the election is contested. So if you're given a provisional ballot in any of these red states, your vote never gets counted. In 2004, going into the, you know, at the end of the election, John Kerry, they were, you know, lost by, as I recall, around 160,000 votes. There were about that many provisional ballots that literally were never opened. John Edwards, on this program in 2004, was yelling and screaming about it, saying we need to have an audit of the vote in Ohio. Those provisional ballots are never counted. Well, why did those people get provisional ballots? Because they weren't on the voting rolls. Why were they not on the voting rolls? Because the governor of Ohio had thrown them off the voting rolls because they lived in areas that were heavily Democratic, heavily urban, or heavily black, or heavily Hispanic. It's just that simple. Our election system has been rigged by the GOP. John, in Heinsburg, Vermont? Well, you're a Vermonter, right? 
Well, I lived there for 10 years. Yeah. So you're probably one of the only few people who would know the name uh, Matthew Lyon. Oh, yeah. He was the guy that John Adams had arrested and put in jail in Virgins, Vermont, in an unheated jail cell through the winter of uh, 1799. And he was reelected to Congress in the election of 1800. Correct. By a two to one margin from jail. Yes, exactly. Um, His story arc is repeating so closely to the current political climate. I mean, the alien sedition laws authorized putting immigrants in cages. It gave the president the right to bar immigrants and incarcerate the press. We were in a position of calling our political opponents traitors. Uh, Lyon was marched 40 miles in shackles from Fairhaven to Virgins. And his speeches, if you go read what put him in jail, uh, he accused the president of having selfish avarice requiring ridiculous pomp and foolish adulation. Right. As I recall, the paragraph that really got John Adams, he said, Adams is old, toothless, querulous, and balding. Yes. And the, uh, the, um, the, it was personal. The, the alien sedition laws were signed, or there were several acts of it, but mm-hmm. one of them was signed on Lyon's birthday. Lyon was the first imprisoned under it. And Matthew Lyon's first speech to Congress was to refuse to kneel down in front of John Adams, who used to require people kneel, and then he would say, rise and address his excellency. So Lyon gets there, refuses to genuflect, and it starts off this, you know, massive power play with the Federalists. And like you said, he gets real, he becomes a martyr from jail. He goes viral. All of his printing stuff's getting uh, picked up by the Aurora, Ben Franklin's paper. Right, which, which and, uh, John Adams then put out of business, by the way, because the Aurora yeah. was published by Benjamin Franklin Bach, uh, Ben Franklin's grandson, and, and John Adams had him put in jail under the, uh, under the Alien Sedition Act. Right, and they used to have, um, they used to charge more. The post office would charge more for shipping uh, the Republican newspapers, the Democratic Republican newspapers, than the Federalist newspapers. It, I mean, it's and we've seen the same thing where Trump's like, oh, you know, Amazon and the post office. Gee, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, the, and his um, his printing press, um, the name of his paper, the scourge of aristocracy. If you read the articles from that, it's right now. What's it a go- what's a good source crazy. for that, John? If if somebody wanted to dig deeper into Matthew Lyon's life. Well, okay. So uh, I don't want to be uh, self serving. Um, Feel free. So, uh, just with your permission. Um, I, um, some friends and I actually wrote a musical about him. And, huh. uh, and so I did a ton of research about him. Uh-huh. Um, and so if you Google Matthew Lyon, you come up with that. Um, that's just how I storytell. So okay. that was the first place I it's went It's L-Y-O-N, to. Matthew L-Y-O-N. L-Y-O-N, Matthew right. Lyon. And I'm telling you, um, you know, his, it's, it's right now. It is right now. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, John, thank you very much for the call. That's... Uh, hey, Tom. Yeah. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, good talking with you. It's an amazing story. It really is. It really and truly is. I I tell the story of Matthew Lyon in my book, We the People, uh, which is out of print now, but you can buy used copies online if you're you're curious. Uh, It's it's actually an illustrated um, book. You know, it's got cartoons and things in it as well. But Matthew Lyon's story is in there. That's when I first learned about it, when I was researching for that book. It's amazing. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.